Konnichiwa. Welcome to the Jandals in Japan podcast. Hey, Catherine, how's it going? Great all over here. Now, we just hit record because I have to capture the story. Catherine, <laughs> tell us what happened to you on the weekend. You got bitten by a buyo. Yes, and I hear it's called a black fly. Okay. And I didn't know they existed in Japan. And yeah. they do. They're an yeah. insect. I thought mosquitoes. Yeah, it's like a really nasty version of a mosquito kind of thing, right? Yeah, they, they bite you. Yeah. That was the worst that could happen to my pure white skin and juicy, juicy blood that I have, which mosquitoes <laughs> just totally love. Oh, they love you, apparently, do they? Mm. even the buyo has now found my body and it gave mm. me a nasty bite the other day. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's on my forearm. It looked like I had some disease, mm-hmm. but I didn't. However, I found, aside from the usual pharmacy sort of uh, inoculations, shall we say, that you dab onto this. Mm-hmm. I found another one called kinkan. It was lovely. Ancient you know, Japanese yeah. kinkan, yes. Kinkan, and yep. I didn't know it existed, Jane. And mm-hmm. so the person at the restaurant saw my arm and went away to the little first aid cabinet, mm. came back and dabbed it on my ha- arm in the middle of the restaurant. <laughs> and my goodness, it, it's got ammonia and all kinds of weird things. Yeah, in it. It, like I think it even has... Tomoro, not tomoro koshi, togarashi, that one, chili as well. Chili pepper in it. I looked at the ingredients right. this morning and mm. it's taken the redness down, it's taken the itch out completely and it's now resolving itself. Mm. I must say too, I have been adding manuka oil on top of it right okay. now to help mm-hmm. the healing. Mm-hmm. So there we go, a New Zealand-Japan combination, but mm-hmm. I didn't know that product existed. But Japan does have these amazing things to deal with the Yeah, obviously they've developed something to deal with these buyo bites. Um, We have a bottle of King Khan in our house for 15 years, I think. And it was like so out of date, but my husband kept using it. I was like, stop using that. But he's, uh, yeah, it's King Khan, put the King Khan on it. King Khan will help you. So, yeah. Oh, Oh, new discovery. It's got a bit of that stuff. It hurt. It really hurt. I was in the restaurant but anyway it got me there <laughs> thank you so much for that introduction to the chap at the restaurant and oh that's um, so lovely brilliant yeah brilliant and it actually care. doesn't expire till 2026 so okay. i think your yeah. husband can probably continue to use the one he's got oh, yeah i'm sure it's fine you know it's got chili chili pepper in it you know yeah chili yeah <laughs> oh gosh amazing discovery so i want to share that one mm. yeah watch out for the buoy when you go into the mountains or the yeah, rivers oh. and stuff they hang out and yeah we don't have them here where I live, but I think if you go, yeah, into the forest, you can. Yes. They're there. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is where I happen to be. So uh, there mm. we go. I learned something very much new today. Yeah. Right. Can I tell you a story? Sure. Have you got well, one? I heard this story recently about, uh, we've been talking about masks a little bit on uh, other episodes, right? Right. And yes. how the Japanese government has been trying to get people to demask in public as the temperatures go up. And the risk for heat stroke increases dramatically at this time of year. This little story I heard from someone who works in a Japanese company, they're Japanese, and they said that there was going to be a evacuation drill. So in Japan, we have a lot of evacuation drills. They're called hinan kunden in Japanese for various things. Could be fire or earthquake or whatever. And it was during the heat wave that we had a couple of weeks ago. Oh, It was over 32 degrees and just standing outside probably felt like 38 or 40 degrees, right? And so apparently the company head office sent around a memo saying, very hot today, 
uh, when you're going outside for the evacuation drill and you're not speaking and you're keeping social distance, it would be good to remove your mask. Sure. Um, for, Sounds logical. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's damn hot out there, right? So anyway, so this person decided, oh, excellent. This is a good chance to take my mask off because I have to stand outside in the 32 degree on the degree heat on the concrete for quite a while, right? While these things happen. You've been in these drills, right? Oh, I have. Yeah. That sounds like logical thinking from that person too. (laughs) So they went outside with no mask and stood there and then looked around and there's several hundred people. We're talking about, you know, six or 700 people working in this company and they could see only a few people with no mask on. And they were quite surprised, obviously. It's really, really hot. So it would have felt very hot outside. Mm. And then after a while, there was an announcement over the PA speaker system. Uh, It's very hot today in order to avoid uh, heat stroke. If you're not speaking and you're keeping social distance, it would be okay to remove your mask. So I'm using this kind of IMI kind of language of this sort of, it's not exactly clear please remove your mask. But I think that was how it would have been delivered. The indirect way that Japan uses sometimes, right? But they really want you to do it. Take Mm. your mask off. Okay, what happened next? So so then the person who had gone out with no mask on looked around to see, oh, let's see how many people take their mask off. And they saw five or six people had removed their mask and sort of in their near vicinity. But there's still several hundred people standing there with their masks on. And... Then after a little bit more time had passed, they noticed that the people who took their mask off after the second announcement started to put their masks back on. Oh! Once they'd noticed that nobody else had taken their mask off around them. And so that sort of unspoken social pressure was yes. there, right? To put sure. their, like sort of, you can imagine it, right? Sort of like yeah. oh my God, nobody else take their mask off. Okay, put it back on. And yeah, so that's the story for you. So this is the extent of the social pressure that your average Japanese person is under around mask wearing. So if you are coming to Japan, you might be like, well, what's the problem? (laughs) But this is how deep it goes. And I often talk to my kids about, you know, could you make sure you're not wearing a mask when you're walking to and from school because very hot and I don't want anything to happen to you. And they wear masks in school all day and they say, yeah, okay, mum, okay, mum, but I say, well, how about your friends? And they're like, oh, no, they wear masks, you know, and they don't want to take their masks off. So it's very much a security blanket sort of thing Mm. that's going on, I feel. And just to be aware of that uh, when you come to Japan. (laughs) Yeah, even though people (laughs) are being guided to take them off, they're still having them on. I have noticed, Jane, in the last week or so in Tokyo that people are more so removing them Mm -hmm. or having them Mm -hmm. tucked under their chin which I didn't really see, say, in the few weeks before that. So there's a little bit of a shift, I've noticed. But mm-hmm. that story astounds me, right? Mm, that just shows right? how entrenched yeah. it is and how much longer it's really going to take for Japan to move out of mask wearing. Yeah. yeah. Not going away Thanks for sharing yeah. that. Gosh, mm. how interesting. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so to totally not segue into our <laughs> actual episode for today, hold on to your jandals. Uh, hold just on saying. to your jandals. Yeah, I'm holding on to mine and doing a fan girl dance uh, yeah. around the room in this episode yeah. for our our guest Dave Mayer. And you might be like, who who's Dave Mayer? <laughs> if you've never you've never heard the name, don't 
be misled, right? We have a really great episode for you. Thank you to our listener who introduced us to our guest today. Should we give a little bit of a shout out to Graham? Yeah, Graham, Graham thank who you introduced so much. Us. Yeah, and I think we wouldn't have got in touch with Dave had it not been for you, Graham. So we wanted to say thank you very, very much. And, you know, it really matters that people who are listening are thinking about who else could be on the show mm. who could add value and give us really great advice and guidance that we might never be able to tap into if we didn't have the introduction. Yeah. All right. Where else could you hear the story? I'm not sure, right? So I really yeah. don't think we could. Yeah. How this is why we're so excited. We? <laughs> <laughs> and I think you were saying a little while ago how it's a Kichona episode. Yes. Before we push record, I I said this is a bloody Kichona episode, which is <laughs> valuable, valuable, special episode. So yeah. let's just get into it, eh? Let's just, I mean, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Here is Dave Mayer. Kia ora. Welcome to the Jandals in Japan podcast. Hi, David. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Kia ora, Morena, and all of the above. <laughs> nice to see you. Great to have you on the show today. We have a warm-up question for you, as usual. Yes. So, A or B, which do you prefer, udon or soba? Udon. Oh, that was answer. a quick answer. What's, what's with the udon? I just, I'm so used to having udon at lunchtime, so I just like it. I mean, in summer, sure, people like cold soba, but I just like udon. It's very efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I came to love udon once I had children and they were always like, udon, udon. I'm like, what is this udon stuff? Because I'd never really ate it before they were around. And then I'm like, oh, this is kind of like a sandwich, but it's noodles kind of thing. Yeah, so in summer, definitely cold. Uh, what is it? Bukake udon is is a very useful food to have. How about you, Catherine? Ooh, well, I, I moved from an udon lover to a soba lover. I used to love udon my first time in Japan. Um, I had tanuki udon mm. and I loved it. Um, but now I've moved to soba uh, just because of a healthy thing. I don't know <laughs> why, but I really love soba and um, cold. Definitely mm, cold. cold. Yeah. 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 All the way. It's that time of the year, isn't it? It's getting, getting very hot here. So, uh, Nice bowl of cold soba it really hits the spot at lunchtime. Yeah. Well, Dave, we are so pleased to have you here. We know you're in Japan currently. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Jane, for giving me the opportunity. And so we know you've been this leading household brand name, quintessential brand name, Scalarup, leader for a long time. You're South Island guy, just like us. Hey. Tell us about those early days and that time coming to Japan. I was a country boy. I grew up in Wingatui, south of Dunedin, and it's famous for a race course and uh, nothing much else, to be honest. <laughs> and so I went to a Tiger Boys high school, which is famous for bullying, as you may know. I quickly worked out that um, when people came up with, um, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me kind of thing. So they had names like Nightmare, Golda. So anyway, it was interesting because in my class, there was another very quiet guy. And he got picked on one day. He's quite a big guy. And suddenly he leveled this guy at sort of chest height and he went smash on the ground. He did judo. So ah. it was my first introduction to martial arts. And so I said, oh, you know, how did you do that? I want to learn how to do that. And he said, I go to the YMCA in Dunedin. So I went to the YMCA and did judo and karate and aikido. And I became obsessed with it, to be honest. So 
really from about 12, 13 on, my journey in martial arts started. So that was a big part of, as you know, a big part of what brought me to Japan. Mm. And then also it's been a big part of helping me sort of make sense of what I learned here that I wasn't really aware that I was learning. I saved some money and then at 23, as you said earlier, Catherine, I jumped on a plane and went to Japan. I had one one friend from university, Philip, who he'd grown up in Hong Kong. He ran a street gang in Hong Kong. So he was an interesting guy. And so we arrived in Tokyo and we had enough money to last two and a half weeks. There was a person, Rick Littlewood, he was the first New Zealander to go to the Olympics in 1972, represented New Zealand in judo. And he had connections in Kyoto with uh, Doshishi University, the Kyoto um, riot police, the Kyoto Fukei, and some very famous teachers here. So, of course, I ran into him in Tokyo and he said, oh, you've got to go to Kyoto. All these guys are waiting for you. So there were a number of Kiwis living here at the time. So we jumped on a plane and turned up. And um, and, and of course, um, they weren't expecting us. So we ended up, for various reasons, um, crashing with a couple of Kiwis, as you do. And then from there on, it was just up and up and up. And uh, through another Kiwi, I got introduced to Panasonic and I started teaching English there. That was the original part and then ended up doing some funny enough, computer programming for them and things like that. But that was sort of the introduction to Kansai, which Mm -hmm. I've grown to love. But I guess the relevant part for me is I was here for around 10 and a half years. Of course, I came here for two years, five times in a bit is kind of the way to say it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so the intention was only ever to be here for two years. When I went back to New Zealand, um, I thought initially I'd end up having some value from the Japanese that I'd learned, but I learned very quickly there were people that were far better at language than me. I mean, I I could speak okay, but, you know, I was doing judo every day. So, um, and of course, there's a lot of Japanese living in New Zealand who are also mm. very good at, at, at Japanese. Of Funnily enough. <laughs> so, you know, unless you wanted to be a tour guide or something like that, there, there weren't a lot of opportunities. And so I was offered a few jobs in companies. So one, one was interesting. One was um, a part of Fletcher's. It was the housing division. And I was offered the role. But the first thing they wanted to do was to send me back to Japan for two or three years. And I'd done some work on what their problems were. And their problems were actually based in New Zealand. And so they couldn't control quality, the quality of the manufactured product made in New Zealand. So that was the first inkling that, well, actually, I knew how to fix that stuff. But they insisted on me going to Japan. And I said, no, no, your prob- unless we fix the problems here, there's no point in going to Japan. And they said, it's all about sales. And I said, no, it's all about getting your quality right and getting your pricing right. Mm. So that was sort of the first hint. So I turned that job down, which was fortunate for me. And I ended up working in Interlock, which was a small Wellington-based company that uh, made window and door hardware. And the founder, one of the two founders, Stuart Young, he was quite famous for um, developing the Japanese market. He developed the test for projecting windows or opening windows. And that, that has become part of the Japan industrial standards, the so-called JIST standards. And it just staggered me that a little guy in Wellington, he made up the test, the, the endurance test and everything that is now part of the JIST standards. And, um, and he developed the Japanese market, but he was going to retire. And they wanted someone in the company that understood Japan. And this, you know, no offense to you two who probably are experts, but I, I never considered myself an expert on Japan. Just I knew certain people and certain things. And so... I just found it interesting that also they'd made a lot of progress in what I'd call Japanese advanced manufacturing techniques and all those quality things I was talking about a minute ago. They were living and breathing it then. So this didn't come in from me. This was already happening. 
but in a couple of areas they they could improve and so they didn't have a sort of a continuous improvement program and i realized there was a great opportunity for kaizen and kaikaku thinking so i mean i worked there for a short period of time a brilliant company so just round figures it was 38 million revenue seven percent ebit and in five years it was 106 million revenue and 30 35 percent ebit no back wins from the from the market, then it was sold for 11 times earnings in 2001 to Asa Abloy. As part of that process, I became a shareholder and made my first stake. And so I started to understand the game of business in that sense. And then I worked for Asa for two and a half years and then quit. But I, I think the important thing I wanted to share with your listeners and particularly with you both, Jane and Catherine, is when I went back to New Zealand, I thought, well, you know, I enjoyed the judo and the aikido and the martial arts that i did here and it's still a big part of me what i had failed to appreciate is the value of what i'd learned through my interaction with my landlord mr sano who won an award for one of the emperor's awards for services to small business for example and once a week he would take me out for lunch he said to me once he said oh you know i, I make uh, printed circuit boards funnily enough for panasonic and in the old days with computers and he said so i've got a supplier and it's a very reliable supplier and um and then this other supplier came and visited us and said i can do it 20 percent cheaper what would you do mm. and i said well you don't have any choice i mean 20 percent is a huge cost saving so i said you you switch suppliers and then he said i was the nakodo the arranger at his the supplier's daughter's wedding. Okay. The first supplier. Sorry, the first supplier. The current supplier. The current supplier. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, it's still such a huge change in price. You'd have to change. And then he just kept going and he said, you don't change. You don't <laughs> change. We're not price takers. Mm -hmm. So this is where I started to learn about pricing and the importance of pricing. What he said was, he said, I have a relationship. It's not just I buy stuff from me. I have a relationship. So he said, here's what I did. I said to him, you and I have six months to improve your costs to the same as the alternate. He said, why would I change to an un unproven supplier? Mm. So uh, that's just one anecdote of the kinds of things that it never occurred to me that would be useful until I went back to New Zealand, which in general, we're price takers. We're taught to sell at the gate. It's a big issue for New Zealanders in terms of how we think about pricing. So to me... That's one small example, but I, so I regularly every week near enough, I had a little lesson in business. I just didn't recognize it at the time until I started playing these conversations in my mind. Funny enough, when I was back in New Zealand facing the same issues. The thing is that if business people come to Japan, they often come on a short business trip. And so what can they learn? And of course, they're very focused on their business, right? And their products or service and things like that. But there are sort of some hidden things about how carefully the toilets are cleaned. The visual systems in a coffee shop, you have, they call it bottomless cup, as you know, whether the waitress or waiter will come around and fill your coffee cup up. But then if you say, no, no, that's enough, they don't come back again. So how do they do that? And there are various visual systems, and this is very much part of Kaizen. They often have cream in a little jug. And when you say no more, they take the little cream jug away and then they know not to offer you coffee again and just so there's there's a myriad of these kind of little systems that's why japanese service seems so good it's standardized service it's exactly kaizen in that sense but um for me it's become 
my raison d'etre for business. It's kind of how I think about business. And, and, and the other thing about Kaizen, it involves everyone. So, it, you know, kind of an analogy, it involves the toilet cleaner, it involves the waitress waiter, it involves the financial team. It's a way of getting the whole organization focused on how can we do things better. So how do you get the whole organization behind you and in that thinking and help them to understand that the concept of Kaizen is not just a Japanese philosophy that sits in Japan, but it can be used elsewhere? How do you get everyone to come along with you? I, I think, first of all, and Japanese companies are very good at this in general, you have to explain the purpose of the company. So you know, early on, I used to ask people, the leaders, we have leadership meetings, and I'd say, so what's the purpose of the company to make money for shareholders? And I mean, I see, I used to say to them, seriously, do you think I got out of bed this morning to make money for shareholders? Oh, no, now it's stakeholders, and we'll probably come back to that. But that's not why I get out of bed. I get out of bed because I work with people I really like. Um, they're interesting people. I get out of bed because I'm learning. I learn from some of the other things that people are doing. And, and I feel a sense of purpose. So, so then we break purpose down into five things. Number one, customers. Without customers, forget your business. So it'll apply the same for Jandals in Japan and your own businesses. But, you know, at the end of the day, without customers. So you have to have true customer focus. And true customer focus is something that you have to develop in the thinking inside the business. And you have to involve people in that. But so how does a press operator feel a sense of customer focus? Well, everyone's a supplier to the next person in the process. So it's very process-driven. So you can connect the toilet cleaner and the waiter, waitress, and the press operator. You can connect them to they have a customer, the person that uses their service. It's very Japanese. They call it the internal customer concept. Of course, ultimately, it all fails if you fail to deliver to the external customer. But that's just one thing. So, so the lesson, though, people can internalize that imperative, but they need to live and breathe it every day. So true customer focus is good for the customer and good for scalar up. So a lot of people just say, oh, this, the customer wanted this. So they charge off and do it because the customer wanted it. So that's the first part of purpose. The second part is, of course, your employees. And the employees is a bigger one because the reality is in Christchurch, we employ around 200 people, but they all have family. So what's the, what's the key purpose about people? Well, again, there's a balance like a seesaw. It's got to be good for scalar up and good for the employees. But think of the augmented employees. So I think I feel a responsibility for their families and for their, even their friends and things like that. So, and this is how you develop this all-inclusive culture. And then, of course, the opposite of um, customers is suppliers. You don't screw suppliers down. That's not going to work. You need to have the same seesaw where it's good for the suppliers and good for Scalarup, not good for Scalarup and suppliers. We want to be a very good supplier to our customers. We want to be a demanding but fair customer to our suppliers. So that's sort of the front end, I call it, of the business. Then again, the fourth part of purpose is the community we influence. And the community we influence is people. So when we talk about customers, it's no good talking about Sikisui House or Daiwa House or YKK. You have to talk about the individual people that you, you can influence in that relationship. The same with suppliers. It's no good saying we have Scalarup Jiangsu in China. It's Martin Lee. He's the leader there. That's the person. 
It's Guy Muley, a Kiwi guy up in the States now, 36 years old, I believe. You know, he's running three businesses for Scalarup, a phenomenal leader. So you, you have to talk about people. And then you have to know his wife, Sarah, just had a, a, this, their second child yesterday. And that's the community. That's so the community, the community yeah. is very important. And I, I mentioned in the, the briefing that, you know, I'm very proud that we get involved in our community. So what's our community? We're Scalarup. In New Zealand, we're known for red band gumboots. But the reality is, we're one of the largest suppliers of food grade rubberware to the dairy industry. That's about a third of our business. And two thirds of our business is all the technical stuff, potable water and all those things. So in New Zealand, many people off farms know that we supply the fundamentally the rubberware for milking cows. So who's our community? Well, clearly farmers are. And there's been a high suicide rate among farmers because they're maligned at the moment. They're causing all of our emission problems. And all. so they, they feel downtrodden a bit. We also have this breast cancer awareness. So we get involved in things. It's not about the company donating money. It's not that. It's things that we, we passionately believe in. Now, of course, there's a fifth part of purpose. And it's obvious what it is. It's shareholders. Because when companies get in trouble, and you know, I, I used to be told by the analysts, um, You've got a lazy balance sheet. And my answer carefully was, I'm not lazy. So lazy balance sheet means we should pay money out to shareholders and then put the company at risk. And then ultimately, you're at the mercy of banks. I've been there. Yep. Scalarup, when I took over, had $118 million of debt and was in trouble. So when I joined the board in 2006, it was seriously in trouble. I never want to be in that position again. So I'm quite happy if people think that we have a lazy balance sheet. It just simply means we have choice. And I'm known for being disciplined around capital allocation, which is dollars and people. A long answer, but I think it's an important answer. How do you link everyone in the organization? I think if you think about what I've said, you can kind of see how it all kind of comes together. And then, of course, I get to know people, you know, know, know thyself, then know thy enemy, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's about know, people, isn't it? It's, it's about it's, people it's, relationships. Yeah. I am interested to know how you are connecting the person who cleans the toilet, the person in the restaurant who knows you have finished your bottomless coffee or taken away your cream, and that line worker. Yeah, I, I think the consistency of true customer focus, everyone has a customer, and help, help people understand that. So when New Zealand companies visit Japan, they try to think of name customers of that. Oh, we, we, we need to get YKK on board or we need to do this or that. The one company we were missing from an interlock point of view was YKK. Now, it's a huge company, as I'm sure you know. So, so what do you do? Some advice for people that uh, turn up to a large company. Turn up early. Turn up at least 30 minutes before your appointment. Large companies have museums. Go to the museum and learn about the history of the company. So the reason the company is where it is now is based on the history. It's kind of, if you understand where it came from, you can not only see where it is, you probably can work out where it's going. And therefore, you can align with where it's going. You can help them align that you're part of the journey that they're on. So where was YKK's first overseas subsidiary? The Tony Wellington. Really? It's a funny thing, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah. My God. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So here's the second thing. In those days, Martin Weavers was the ambassador. The yes, Martin, yes. He knew the Yoshida. So YKK is Yoshida Kabushiki Gaisha, of course. And he, he played golf with Mr. Yoshida. He said, I can get you an introduction. I can't do any more than that. So I turned up at YKK with an introduction to the big boss and talked about 
New Zealand's an island country, Japan's an island country, and my bad Japanese connected by the Taiheyo, the big ocean. And then very quickly, we won the business. Oh, boy. So, oh, boy. So it, it, is, it is all about people. I, I, it I'll, is all about people. All about the people. Yeah. And I, I don't know about you. I spent time teaching English in Japan for a while. I, I learned a few tricks about memorizing names and so one thing i've become good at is memorizing people's names and getting the spelling right and those kind of things because in kyoto in the old days they they would say my dog meaning you know yes they do. see you again that kind of thing yes my dog yeah? yes, exactly and the, the reality is often you hadn't been at that bar for a year but they did remember you how do they do that mm. so another thing i'd say is when when people come to japan don't be shy write down the names on you in your notebook when you're here representing your company, your New Zealand company in Japan, pay attention. Mm. Really pay attention to what's happening and memorize the names. Now, for Kiwis that maybe haven't lived in Japan or haven't learned Japanese, memorizing the names is hard. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because um, names are so important to people. What I used to do is just write it phonetically when I was in my early days, as well as when I got their business card, I'd later go home and and I had a notebook, as you just yes. say, and chop up the photocopy of the card yes. and put it into the book. Yes. So I had the name, I had all the references, their job title, and that would be what I'd look to the next time I was going back to see them to refresh my mind. I think it's a really important thing if you remember people in there, the thing that they said that was important, the the baseball team they support. Exactly. Or the the they like Udon or Soba. You know, or they don't like something, right? And you remember that and you don't bring the wrong gift to them. So it's mm. vital. The tiny things really matter. Absolutely right. So yeah. Mr. Sano famously had his little black book. So if you ask him about, you know, some company or something, he'd pull out his little black book and he'd say, oh, I know such and such, you know. Yeah. And some of that was the Dorshisha Obi Society or whatever. But but it's also okay to hold the book and have the book yes. because that's showing that the respect that you remembered something and maybe you're just jogging your memory, but why not have a book? It's not Absolutely. right? It's not embarrassing to have that. It's actually really, really great showing that you've got that process. I know we have limited time, but here, here's a thought for you just to keep going. So what is Kaizen? So why is Kaizen so important? Well, in the West too much, people they think the decision-making is made by the bosses. So there are people in Scalarup, a lot of people that think my job is to make decisions for them and tell them what to do. But what happens is in the West, for a long period of time, they went through a thing called management by objectives, which was really about bosses telling workers what to do. And in Japan, they harness the collective will of everyone. It takes a bit longer. They talk about consensus, although I've seen companies in Japan move very, very quickly as needed. So it's, it's a myth that they always take too long to get everyone to agree. What's the glue? And to me, it's an understanding of how you improve any process. So the fundamentals are, you can think about outcomes or you can think about process or you can think about both. Outcomes are important. If you're losing money year after year, you don't have a great future in business. So the outcome of how much money you make or lose is very important. But you could be doing the right things in the business and still losing money. You could be doing the wrong things in business and still making money. So you have to get your head around a process focus. You may know that Deming, the, the, the leader of quality in the world, he set up a lot of stuff in America, wasn't well respected in America. He became very famous in Japan. Catherine, at Panasonic, you'll see mm. statues of Deming mm. around. And he was, he was a statistician. Yeah. So it's not about your opinion. It's actually about data and it's numerical data. 
So Kaizen is the process of before we make a change, we standardize the process. Then before we make a change, we apply the scientific method. We consider a change and we involve people in the change and we say, what do we think will happen? How will this be better? And then we make the change. But when we make the change, the change is not the same as we predicted. That gap is the learning opportunity. Now, Kiwis tend to, if there was any gain at all, they make another change. That's the big mistake. You should go back to where you were and understand that difference. If the difference is big, there may be an even better chance to improve the first step. So that's the fundamentals of Kaizen. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll choose an easy name because I can read it on the screen, Jane. So here's how I teach people about change in the organization. I actually, I might get 10, 12 people in a room and we, we're talking about a, I don't know, let's say a manufacturing change. We want to double the output of a line and we want to do that in five days. So we get everyone in the room at the start and we talk about the change process. So Jane, if I ask you to write your name, I you may have a middle name, I don't know, but just Jane Nakata. Mm -hmm. So there are 11 letters. And if I asked you to write that five times, I could time it. Right. Now I'm going to change the process, but here's the thing. I'm going to make it roughly 50% easier. I'm going to ask you to write every second letter, but you have to write it five times. And then you can't look at what you wrote when you do it the second or the third time. And because it's unfamiliar, I'll tell you time and again, it will take you longer to write half the letters. Yes. So yeah. I'm just doing I'm that. Like, it's taking me a long time. <laughs> okay, so for Jane, it would be J-Y-E-A-A-A because of Nakata. It's mm. a little easier. Mm. Then, of course, it takes longer. But if you practiced it for a couple of days, of course, yeah. the, the work content is half. So there would be a gain. What Kiwis do is just when that gains happen, the boss comes along and says, I've thought I've got another idea. We're now going to write every second letter. So A-N-N-K-T. Mm. So we, we keep changing things, thinking right. we make, so change in itself does not improve things. A standardized change process does because it kind of locks the improvement in place. So once you've made the change, you must standardize. Standardize means everyone doing the process would do it the same way. Everyone. It's that simple and that hard. It's really hard for Kiwis because we just love change. We just think my way is better. Well, I can think of a different way of doing it that, that's good and bad. I mean, there's, there are times when we do need to innovate. So just on innovation and novelty. Hmm. A lot of about that. Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of people think change is innovation. Then, you know, so Nova, meaning mm. all that stuff. Innovation creates value for the customers, the way I think about it from business. Novelty is just new. It has nothing to do with whether there's value there or not. It's just different. Mm. Different is not necessarily better. Mm. So we get lost in New Zealand a bit with novelty. I think that's an explanation of Kaizen. Then Kaikaku is doing, as I said, it's just doing that kind of step, but halving or doubling. So if you have 10 people on a line, you within four or five days, you have five people with the same output. Mm. And so it's, but it's involving, so the other five people don't lose their jobs. That wouldn't work. The idea is to really, really focus on standardizing the process and then eliminating unnecessary steps, you know, a step is either adding value or adding waste. Mm. And the Japanese are very, very good at this. So I guess the lesson for your listeners is 
This is stuff you can read about in New Zealand. But actually, for many of the companies, the failure for their products or service is not a failure in market. It's actually a failure back home in New Zealand in terms of what they need to be able to do. So it's fine when things are going well. The big thing we learned at Interlock was when things go wrong, we had to show a standardized problem-solving process to prove we had eliminated the cause, in our case, of product rejects, product mm -hmm. failure. The standardized Ishikawa diagram, it's called, or cause-effect diagram or whatever. That, that, so you have to train your staff in problem-solving. Don't assume they know how to solve the problem because they just go, oh, I think it's this. I think it's that, <laughs> which is a bit random. Yeah, so yeah. There, there isn't a sort of a unified approach to doing that in New Zealand. And I think the hard thing there is that it's not natural for New Zealanders. That's why I'm saying that when, when New Zealanders come to Japan, there's usually two or three things that happen. They're amazed at how sincerely people work, regard, you know, back to the toilet cleaner or whatever, or the person on the station picking up rubbish or whatever. They want to be the best toilet cleaner they can be is probably the way to say it, or the best way. It could be a part-time job while they're at university. They really try hard to do a good job. So, so that's quite touching. The second thing is just the service level seem better, but it's not by luck. It's by training. So the beauty of visual systems is that you can learn them in a couple of hours. If you're a waitress and you, you're told you have to go around and offer coffee, but so how do you know when to and when not to and all those things? When they bring the little, in the old days, they used to bring, I don't know if they still do now, they used to bring the bill on a piece of paper. When everything had been delivered to the table, they'd fold it in half. Or, mm -hmm. or in the I little mean, circular thing, they'd put it, it inside that little perspex right. container. Yeah, yeah. Mm. that's right. Or they, yeah. I mean, there are a number of different ways. So, so one, of the, one of the games I play when I come here, and I'm still doing, it just becomes a habit. Try to spot the patterns. Try to work them out for yourself. And yeah. um, it's a way of sort of visu visually bulletproofing process. My mind has just been going all over the show over here, thinking about how this applies to my, my life here in Japan. So <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. So what's next on our list? <laughs> Where do we want to go next? Well, you've uh, covered a lot yeah, there though, Dave, but this global aspect, and I oh, love yes. how you, mm. I do love how you talked a little bit there about, you know, the failure happens back in New Zealand, not no overseas, but speaking of going global, We've heard mm. a lot recently about New Zealand companies shouldn't go overseas until they've made it back home, right? Don't go uh, overseas until you've done it really well in New Zealand. And we were listening, Jane and I have been listening to a recent podcast with Rianne West, right? And mm. she was speaking with Karen Walker, of course, iconic names. And um, there was this discussion about whether you should go global from the get-go or wait until you've made your profit and then go offshore. They both had different experiences. Where do you sit on that? Obviously, I think it, the answer to all good questions is it depends. But <laughs> I, I think it's very limiting to deal in a market that doesn't necessarily understand pain for value. And sadly, that's the way I see a lot of New Zealand's. But I think the principle is, if you get it right overseas, in a market that is willing to pay for the value of, of your idea, of your service, of your product, then... The scalability of that means that you can do a lot of things in New Zealand that other, you, you just don't have a chance to do it any other way. So our biggest focus in ScalarUp, if you read through the annual reports, has been the US. The US is the single biggest opportunity for ScalarUp. 
we're not ignoring the New Zealand market. It's very important to us. We're not ignoring Asia. Asia's dear to my heart in that sense. But the biggest single opportunity for us as a company is the US. So we've been spending a lot of time there. I think we have six companies there now we'd like to acquire in the US. And we want to strengthen our presence. But one of the, one of the things I always think about is this. So how do you create loyalty? Loyalty, not satisfaction. So obviously satisfaction is important. But loyalty is far more important. I want to retain good customers and good employees. Retain is the number one thing and then develop. So once I've got a loyal customer, I want to retain them. I work really, really hard to retain them and then develop the customer. It's far easier to, you know, the old McDonald's expression, would you like fries with that? It's a lot easier to sell something to an existing customer that is an adjunct product or service to what you do than to find a new customer. Just the nature of business, isn't it? But I I, I do think we we, we often look for a simplistic answer. The answer is, as I said, it depends. And you have to work out what's important to you. So to me, developing and measurement of customer loyalty is really important. So it seems obvious that it's going to be easier to deal with English-speaking people. But I think the Australian, the Australian market is probably the toughest market I've worked on. I mean, China's hard and all those kind of things, but Australia's really, really hard. And it's hard to develop loyalty. I've actually found Japan easier. So maybe I'm biased, but I found if you get to the right people in Japan, they're incredibly loyal to you. Mm-hmm. So the best example I can give, and I, th- I don't think I'm talking out of school, is the swimmer, Thorpe, the Australian swimmer. So when I worked in A2 Milk, Jeff Babbage, who was the CEO, he managed the relationship for Thorpe. I don't know, it was tied up with one of the businesses somehow. And so Ian Thorpe had a contract with Yuki Jirushi, and he was paid mm-hmm. money to appear in things. And then he decided he was going to go to the Olympics. Then he decided he wasn't. And Yuki Jirushi spent a lot of money on the Olympics and then Thorpe pulled out. And then they said, oh, we respect him and rolled on it. I, was, I couldn't believe it. You know, I thought they'd wheel out the lawyers and it would all be over, but um, but they, you know, they believed in him. So coming back to purpose, one of the bits of advice I would give, you know, when I first went back to New Zealand and then represented Interlock, I was coming up here. Of course, they wanted to go out on the booze and all that kind of stuff. And occasionally we'd go out. But here's the thing. I'd remind them. I had a wife and family. So you talk about your family. You talk about your people, your workers. That's the way to impress Japanese, not how much you can drink. That's not how you build a long-term relationship. So, you know, to me, in talking about the purpose of your company and aligning that to the future of the customer that you're visiting, is probably the best advice I can give. I've seen it work again and again. And I mean, I'm sure you, you, you both are doing the same. And I think you're right on that going drinking thing. Mm. Um, over COVID-19, such a restriction on going out. And it wasn't the going out and drinking part. It was the going out and having those conversations Mm. that you just hit on, talking about your family, talking Mm. about, as we said before, baseball, the things that you're interested in to build that relationship. And that was what was missing. And I think that is what you've just really knocked it on on there because that's the important thing about connecting people. Yeah. What about other tips? We just sort of look for maybe Mm. three of your top tips, Dave, that, you would can you narrow four. it down? <laughs> yeah, can you narrow it down? Three of your top tips. What would be three of your top tips for business people, New Zealanders, coming to Japan to have success here? 
Number one, prepare, 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 you know, dib, dib, dob. So prepare carefully. So if you have to give a presentation of any form, just remember PowerPoint slides means they're looking at the slides, not listening to you, or, you know, that, that kind of thing. But, you know, the attention span thing. But it, it used to be trained into us in Panasonic. I can't resist saying this, Catherine, that if we had suppliers, they had to present. And then the next day they'd ask, you know, they'd take them out on the booze. Then the next day they'd ask them to do the same presentation. And you have to be almost word perfect because they'd say, oh, Mr. Tanaka wasn't available yesterday. And people get frustrated. Mm. But you must be able to repeat a presentation about the essential value or benefits, features, benefits of whatever you're selling. You, you have to be able to repeat it without changing and don't get desperate. So never, never explain your itinerary. Or if you do, sort of hint that you're going to the competitor down the road or whatever. But don't let them know when you're leaving. Because, of course, in any negotiation, it's about the time. So you, you don't want to get squeezed on time and get desperate. So in the old days, I used to help a lot of like ice cream companies that came up here. And on the last day, they try lowering price at the end to try to get the deal done. Because they knew it was your last day? Yes. Yes. So mm-hmm. so why would you lower price? if you? So that means you don't believe in your, well, first, have you lied? Like you, you've given your best price and now you're willing to change it. You know, so... Number one is the preparation of your proposition or whatever. And I think the second thing is related to that. Determine the value, and value is expressed in price. I think Warren Buffett said it best. You know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Explain the value that they're getting and then stick to it. Don't be fancy, just stick to it. And I think the third thing is follow through. When you get back, don't leave it two weeks to come back on something you agreed to get back to them on. So my rule of thumb is 24 hours. You've got to resolve whatever you said you were going to want. I mean, if you're living in Japan, it's shorter than that, of course. But I think for someone traveling internationally, you should be able to get back to them in 24 hours. And if you don't, it shows you're not interested. Prepare carefully, determine the value and explain that very clearly to so that they understand what the value is and then follow through within 24 hours or sooner if you can on everything that you promised you're going to do. That thing about being able to repeat verbatim what you said, you know, two days ago or whatever to the same company, I think is really important because they're not looking for new and exciting. Don't entertain us in a different way. We want to know exactly what happened in the other meeting and we don't want anything left out. And that is where the value is not in another way to deliver it or, you know, with extra whistles and bells that were there on Monday, but or it weren't right. on you know, whatever. Yeah. That's exactly and I'd right. add to that. If you did actually find something interesting or new in the, in the intervening days that you do mention it at that meeting, but also ensure that you go back to the previous group and say, this has also been explained at this meeting. I wanted you to know, so you didn't mm. miss out. So that's the key, right? To be able to actually connect that new information back to the original group. If it's really important to add something. If it's really right. important. You, you may have a series of meetings and at the first meeting you realise that what you thought was important is not so important to them, but there's something else that's really important that you have not prepared for. And if overnight you can get clarity on that, then of course you add that in. I guess what I was trying to emphasise is don't change the value proposition. Mind well, you. anything else, Dave, you'd like to mention that we haven't uh, talked about? No, look, it's wide-ranging, I know, and... Um, we probably run out of time. But look, the, the thing I'd say is 
it's great that you've had some downloads. So just, you know, you did put in the questions to me, you know, how could how could we apply Kaizen to uh, genders in Japan? And my natural, the, the way I've, I've approached it is to say, you know, first of all, who are your customers? And are your customers really people who are visiting Japan or people who are visiting Japan to live in Japan? You know, so it's, it's obviously that business connection. What I've tried to emphasize today is the importance of what happens in New Zealand just as much as it is what happens in Japan. Mm. I think there are a lot of people that have lived in Japan. I know a lot of people that have lived in Japan that probably aren't aware of your, your podcast that I think they would be very interested, interested in. The, the trick in some ways is how do you connect or how do you create that and then loyalty you want loyalty so you want people that are coming back and you know it's like like a su- subscriber business or something like that you want them to keep in, yeah. coming involved <laughs> so so the 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 lock-in of customers and customers lock you in so the, the the misapprehension is that you somehow can lock them in it's not the way it works loyalty is given it's not something you take from someone, if that makes sense. So anyway, the sort of the thing I'd leave for particularly you two and with genders in Japan, and well done, by the way. I mean, it's not easy to do what you've done, both individually, but also with genders in Japan, is think hard about your customer segmentation. You probably have two or three different customer segments, and then who can you use to become your champions? So... You know people that are into martial arts. I mean, I'm I'm average compared to some of the people that have, you know, Bill Vincent has represented New Zealand at judo at the Olympics three times. You know, Graham Sayer won an award for kendo recently. Alex Bennett's well known for talking about martial arts on TV here. I mean, there's some wonderful people here. The connection with martial arts in New Zealand is big, yet I wonder how many people who've lived in Japan for one, two, five years are aware of genders in Japan, yet many of them have gone back and they want to do business with Japan. But they, yeah. despite the fact they lived here for five years, many of them have no idea how to go about it. So yeah. the challenge for yeah. you two, I guess, is uh, <laughs> how do you get more people listening to genders in Japan? I'm listening exactly. to it. So. Wow. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're getting a lot of people, just really random people reaching out and saying, I've listened. I used to live in Japan. I'm back in New Zealand now, but there's something missing for them. Like there's... The connection, mm. they still have Japan in their heart and they want to be connected with Japan, even though they now live in New Zealand and their life is, is sort of in New Zealand. So, yeah, we know that people go home to New Zealand from Japan and it's still got a hold on them and they want to continue that relationship. So, yeah, yes. this is kind of our, yeah, we're interest, interested to see where this goes next now from our start point of episode 10 episodes yeah this is very uh, very exciting for us isn't it Catherine totally exciting very exciting really good uh feedback there who are our mm. customers and thank, our you thank you for dissecting our podcast <laughs> for us please don't send us an brain. invoice for this later <laughs> <laughs> we've so fantastic. enjoyed speaking with you Dave um gosh uh, massive downloads happening in my mm. head right now. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming yeah, on the show and being a, a jandal in Japan. You certainly mm. are. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, guys, and look forward to you know meeting you in person, obviously. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. What a fabulous jandal Dave Mayer is. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dave, and sharing your wisdom with us.
Thanks so Very much. Privileged. I didn't even want us to stop recording, Jane. Mm. That was amazing. We could have gone on for hours. Yeah, we could have. That was incredible. It was. I hope everyone else felt that. <laughs> I really do. This is amazing. We're coming out of this absolutely on cloud nine after yep. listening to Dave. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed hearing his anecdotes. I just love stories. I think we're telling a few stories, but I love the story about him learning from Mr. Sano, this yes. enigmatic uh, yes. son, the landlord, who took his person who lives in his apartment out for lunch. Like that's like talk about like just sort of taking people under your wing. Like this Dave was living in this guy's apartment building and the yeah. or oh, I'm assuming it was an apartment. Yeah, was living there and he would go out to lunch with his landlord once a week-ish. And his landlord would tell him these sort of business situations and be like, Well, what would you do? Giving him all these learnings that he didn't know he was actually getting at the time until much later when he got back to New Zealand and really he saw how that applied. And yeah. we, we played those conversations in his mind. And I have had the exact same thing happen to me years later after a Japanese person gently educating me on some Japanese culture thing. One day I will have this sort of epiphanies and be like, oh my God, I cannot believe I did that. That was so rude or, or you know, like culturally that was so rude, but I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Right. And yeah, and then sort of later in a different situation, recognizing that. But isn't that part of it too, the recognizing later at least, right? You can do something about it then. You can change your behavior or you can go back to that person and have you another chat with them. go back and say, I can't believe I did that. I'm Please excuse my former self. <laughs> incredible. But, yeah, here we have a shortcut for you. Um, well, kind of a shortcut. Listen to Dave's stories. Learn from from his learn from our other jandals in Japan and the, some of the boo-boos that they have made or funny incidents they have had. And yeah, put those little nuggets away for when you are right. in a similar situation and you can know what to do as well. Exactly. It's sort of how can this relate to me? It's not just that person's story. What what have I had happen mm. with me in this last week, for example, that mm -hmm. someone said something to me that I thought, oh yeah, about it. And then maybe actually there's some more depth to it. Yeah. How interesting to think about our recent conversations in that way. Wow, yeah. Dave. Yeah. How incredible. I loved that he talked about Panasonic. You know, I used to work <laughs> with them. I do oh, work with yes. them now, but just the whole story took me back to Osaka and my days there and his references to that museum visit, right? Like, for example, at Panasonic, when my parents came to Japan, we went to the Matsushita Museum mm. and dad was fascinated looking at all the national and Panasonic things but then when we went to the modern museum later on for the tour he connected the old product mm -hmm. in his mind with the new ones and he would refer to them and i thought that was really brilliant how dave mentioned go to the museum mm. you've got a museum most of the manufacturers have a museum there they're yes, very they proud of mm. and usually the labelings in both english and japanese and you can see the products there and mm. relate them back to what you are doing now how it works, how it means something to them now. So I think that was a really lovely point. Uh, and I really appreciate that he brought that one out. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like Panasonic level company, like even smaller companies have these. Exactly. They all like, it's a thing. <laughs> I think it might be a room, you know, it might be a room or it yeah. might be a few glass cabinets or mm, perspex mm. cabinets that you walk past as you're going to the meeting rooms, but yeah. there's always something. Mm. And if there's not, 
you don't see it readily, ask to see it. Yeah. Show yeah. some They curiosity. would love to show you, I'm sure, they if would you love. asked. Mm. They would love it. And they would be that would be reported to someone through some back channel that you asked, even if they yes. don't have anything. Exactly. You asked because you wanted to know and you were interested in their company. So, yeah. Right. And the mm. other great thing, I mean, it sounds obvious, you know, when you're doing presentations, to tell the same story to each group, right, if you have to split yeah. up the groups. And, I, I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but I think Dave really brought that out because no one wants to miss out, miss out on what they mm -hmm. uh, didn't hear from the other meeting. So really having that was, was really important to stay on topic, don't explain anything in more detail than you did at the first meeting. Yeah, because they'll be like, really why is this not the same? Classic, classic, <laughs> classic advice, just, yeah. just spot on, absolutely yeah. spot on keep to the same script no extra points for originality in this and text, the thing right? i learned was that tip about scheduling and not actually oh, telling yes. people when you're leaving the country or going out of town or, or going yeah. out of town how mm. interesting Don't to let use them know that it's your to last you, day yeah use it you to your advantage to, yeah. and not be seem to be in a hurry mm. yeah and not mm. be sort of in a vulnerable position regarding mm. price i thought mm. that was absolute golden jandal mm. yeah oh, totally. there's so much more i could say but i hope everyone <laughs> listens to this i know i'm going to be going back and listening to this again mm. and again because there are literally things in there that may not spike a thought now but mm -hmm. later again when depending on what you're actually in the middle yeah. of doing on your work that's relevant so like, thank you so much yeah, wow right. dave yeah totally. thank you thank you thank you yeah thank really you dave loved so chatting with you and Thank you so much. We're going to continue talking with you. We know that. Yes, it's great to get to know Dave and hopefully stay in contact with him. In and thanks future. again, Graham, for the shout out. Yeah. And so if you know someone who you think would be a great Jandal, please do get in touch with us just like Graham did. We wouldn't, sometimes we just would not know to connect with these people and hear their stories. Like I said, I don't know where else you're going to hear a story from Dave Muir about his time in Japan. Not so much, right? This is a great place to do that. So let us know. Send us an email. We're jandalsinjapan at gmail. It's pretty easy to remember. Or find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And send us a DM. Let us know who you think would be a great jandal for us to interview. Especially some of our women jandals. We need more women jandal guests. We know we need more women jandal guests. So Hook us up. Yeah. Look us Help up. us find these amazing Help people. Us. Mm, thank you so we much. We are very receptive, funnily yep. enough. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, everyone. See you on the next episode. Kia ora. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out our guests' links in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you today by Catherine O'Connell Law and Pod Launch with Jane. If you have a great story you think should be on the show, come and find us on LinkedIn or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Matane.